0: Some of you have been with us all summer and you'll be sad to know that that's the last time you will see that video. We're on number eight, eight times we've talked about this, Life Apps, and we've been talking over the summer about those things in life that we know we should be doing, that we know the truth about, that we've heard, but that we just might not be doing like we ought to. We've talked about things like forgiveness. We've talked about things like uh, living generously. We've talked about uh, forgiving other people, living in a way that shows who Christ is and proclaiming Christ to the people around us. We talked about confessing those things in our lives that are uh, wrong in the sight of the Lord. And this week we're going to finish with one that all of us need, all of us look for but very few of us are giving. You know one of my least favorite things to do? Is to fill up any kind of tank. It seems like I'm filling up gas tanks a lot. I don't know how this works in your family. But in my family, apparently, the higher the price of gas goes, the more we drive. And so it seems every time I'm turning it out, the truth is I'm probably filling up about the same as I always have. But it just... Seems like every time I turn around, I'm having to pull into a gas station. And I don't know about you, but it is painful at the gas station these days. Amen? It's okay to amen in church, especially when we're talking about gas, all right? Amen? It's painful. I, I don't like that. I, 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 a few weeks ago, we were uh, grilling out, and I just filled up both of our vehicles and spit, you know, my month's salary on gas. And I came home, and I we, we had bought some steaks on sale. We were going to have a cookout, and, of course, the kids get um, country steak, also known as a hot dog, and we get the real thing. And so I, I get out, and I put the get the gas going, I put the steaks on, and I get about 15 minutes into grilling, and all of a sudden, no gas. Now, what do you do then? I mean, this is a good piece, you know, of steak I've got, and so... I, probably against better judgment, left them there, went and filled. It's a painful thing. Here's the thing that we're going to talk about today. All of us have tanks in our lives other than our gas tanks. They're personal, emotional tanks. And we are constantly needing to be filled in order to live in a way that glorifies God. Now, here's the principle I want us to think about today. And remember, in this Life App Series, what we're talking about is this. That it's not good enough just to hear something or to know something. That doing it is what matters. And we've used this verse from James the whole time. And the verse from James says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So don't just listen and deceive yourselves. Do what. What it says. And we talked about the fact that application is everything. And so today, what I want you to do is not just think about, wow, those are some interesting points, or wow, that's an interesting thing he just said, or ooh, I never knew it was like that. What I want today is for you to begin to ask the question how can you be somebody that is continually filling up the tanks of the people around you that are consistently encouraging people around you. The life app we're going to talk about today is encouragement, and we're going to talk about it in maybe a couple of different ways than you might expect when you hear encouragement's going to be talked about. But what I want you to think about today is, who in my life can I be somebody that fills their tank? Another way to think about this, there was a a Christian back several hundred years ago by the name of Gregory of Nyssa, and he had this quote about the way that he was encouraging the people around him. And he said that he basically gives this portrait of them running in the race, of them competing in an athletic event. And he says, I am the one at the top of the stadium cheering as loudly as I can cheer for you to do your absolute best and to finish the race. He said basically, I am standing over the balcony encouraging you. Now, we don't think of balcony as a place of encouragement always. In fact, uh, the balcony seats in performance aren't necessarily the best. Now, some people think the balcony seats in a church are the best because they're even farther away than the seats on the back row, right? But balcony seats for people in that day were they were cheering as loudly as they could so that whoever was down there could hear them. I can't help but think about the fact that football season is upon us. And there's nothing quite like going to a big-time football game for a team that you are really into. Titans started playing less. It wasn't a big game. In fact, they may not have many big games at all this year. They're going to have games. They just may not be big games. I went last year to the um, Tennessee-Kentucky game. First time I've been in Nayland Stadium in in, uh, almost 20 years. And there's just something about when a big play happens or it's time for something big to happen or um, some of you are basketball fans or some of you are are tennis fans or some of you, um, I I don't guess they do that in like other arenas. They don't have quilting competitions necessarily like this, but, you know, football, sports, and, and these people are yelling, and I remember last year there was this time when um, Tennessee was playing Kentucky, and I don't know whether you know this or not, but Tennessee hasn't lost to Kentucky in like, you don't know, 120 years or something. It's they Really, it's been 25, it's been a long time, all right? And last year everybody was nervous because we weren't that good. And there was this point in the game when the defense needed to make a stop. And it was almost as if the crowd felt like the whole game hinged on this one play. And we didn't need anybody there telling us, hey, y'all, start cheering. It was as one, we were doing everything we could to get that defense to make the stop. The picture that Scripture gives, one of my favorite passages, is Hebrews chapter 12. And it says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, in direct understanding, it's talking about chapter 11 of Hebrews, where it gives that list of guys that had persevered. But the context is that we are being cheered on every moment. And Scripture teaches that we ought to be part of that encouragement. Now, there are several ways that you can encourage someone. And the first way we're going to talk about today is a principle and then we're going to look at the life of someone to give us some other ways. But the first way you can encourage people is simply with your words. Encourage people with your words. Proverbs eighteen twenty one talks about the fact that those of us that will embrace and love the words that we give to others will prosper. There is this passage in Proverbs that talks about that those who are refreshing will be refreshed. And James chapter 3, it talks about the need to control our tongues and in doing that to encourage one another. Can I just tell you we're not doing a very good job at this? I want to give you a a statistic today that that I know statistics don't always, aren't the most exciting thing, but I, I think it is a fascinating statistic. In fact, I want you to, Help me with it, and I'm going to show you the statistic in an a, a example kind of way. There was a, a research institute that recently did a study asking the question, what is the ratio between encouraging words and critical words in our conversations? Just in normal, everyday conversation, what is the ratio of encouraging words to critical words? And so for every critical word I say, how many encouraging words do I say? Or vice versa. For every encouraging word I say, how many critical words I say? Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you just around you, talk to people around you. I want you to tell them what you think the ratio is. Okay? You got, got what I'm saying? How many encouraging words to critical words? All right? Normal American conversation. All right? What do you think it is? Tell them somebody around you. All right, here we go. I'm I'm not going to ask you to reveal your answer because it would probably reveal more about your home life than you want revealed. All right. But here's what they found out. They found out for every and we'll use the we'll use the pink bucket as the encouraging word bucket. All right. For every one encouraging word, as Americans in conversation, we give one, two, three. Four, five, six critical words. For every one encouraging word, we give one, two, three, four, five, six critical words. Now, here's another little statistic that's interesting. They found that the effect of words are not the same. Do you realize that? A positive word and a critical word don't have the same effect emotionally. And what they discovered is, for every critical word, it takes six positive words to counteract it. Now, by my calculation, and I realize I may not be brilliant at math, and so if this is wrong, you just let it go, okay? That means that critical words are six times more powerful than positive words in conversation. So that's not really accurate. Because to be really accurate, that would mean that for every positive word, the effect is like 36 negative words. And so I'm not even going to count that. But basically, we're not doing a very good job. For every positive word, there are six negatives. And here's the thing. We're all running on emotional tanks that are empty. Now you generally have three areas that you talk to people in conversation on a regular basis, and you can call it the the, the closed circle in the middle that's your close acquaintances your close friends your family that's that's uh, the people that you share most of your life with and then if you go a little farther out on that circle you, you have people that your acquaintances with you talk with occasionally but not all the time you know when, when something happens in your life they're not the people you pick up the phone to call but if you see them you know what's going on in their lives you kind of have an understanding of who they are and then you've got those people on the outside that you may just see every once in a while maybe it's the lady that checks you out at Publix or Kroger or H.G. Hills maybe it's um at the dry cleaners, the person that you see, or somebody that you see in town but you don't really know, but you kind of are acquainted with. And here's what I want you to think about. What is your ratio in each of those circles? Here's an interesting thing that the study found. That the closer we get to the inside of the circle, the higher the ratio of critical words to encouraging words. So when you're out talking and you're at the cashier, most of us don't chew the cashier out at public. Now, maybe at times you have, but most of of the interactions you won't see. Now, maybe it's not overly encouraging, but you're not really giving terrible feedback to your public's checkout person. But the closer you get to your family, well, they know how I feel about them. They don't have to have me tell them that. They know how I feel. And so we've ended up with a culture of people that are running on empty. In fact, here's the thing that's that's uh, kind of striking. is uh, uh, You're probably aware of this whether you know you're aware of it or not, but, but men and women are looking for answers to different questions to determine value in life. So men are wondering, can I cut it? Can I make it? Can I hack it? Am I competent? Am I able to do this? So they're they're worried about at work. Am I going to be able to do the work that I've been called to do? Uh, They're worried about at home. Am I going to be able to be the husband? i Am going to be able to do the things I'm supposed to do? They're they're concerned about their performance. And ladies, let me just say, you don't realize the power your words have with your spouse. Women, on the other hand, are looking for value in who they are in their appearance that's why women play this cruel joke on their husbands they go get their hair cut and don't tell them and then they come home and they don't say a word and they expect the husbands to do what notice and so they wait five minutes and they wait ten minutes and if they get to 15, you're in danger, all right? And if they ever have to utter the words, well, did you notice anything different? Notice anything different? And the guy clueless? Did you move a chair or something? What's, what's different? You haven't worn that shirt in a while. We don't call them blouses. They're shirts for guys. And then if she ever has to say, did you even notice I got my hair cut? Guys, we're done. All right? Here's why. They want to feel valued and encouraged for who they are. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you told your spouse how appreciative you were of them? Guys, when was the last time you told your wife how beautiful she was to you? How valuable she was to you? Ladies, when was the last time you told your spouse how much you appreciate what they do in your family? When was the last time you encouraged them? Now, now, just to be real honest, sometimes in spousal relationships, that can be kind of difficult. And sometimes our encouragements come with little barbs behind them. For instance, uh, Husband and wife, a couple of weeks ago, and I was talking about rest and how that sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is to go take a nap, and a wife leans over to the husband and says, You are so spiritual. Right? You have to be careful and be genuine in it. Here's the thing the more we use our words to encourage each other, the more we'll recognize the things that we're encouraged by. It's not just spouse relationships. It's so important from parents to children. It's so important from grandparents to grandchildren. It is so important to use our words wisely. James in chapter 3, he says that our tongue is like a rudder and determines where our lives go by the words that we use. But words aren't the only way we can encourage. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 4. They're an important way. In fact, they're some of the most important. But they're not the only way. Acts chapter 4. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a brief tour through parts of the book of Acts. So I'm going to expect you to turn the pages in Acts quickly once you get there. All right? We're going to be in Acts 4 for a minute, then we're going to move on. We're not going anywhere else in the Bible, and so uh, if you're following along on um, YouVersion, uh, you can go up to the Bible app and go to, to Acts 4, or you can pick up a Bible in front of you. But we're going to be switching to two or three different places. And the first thing we all want you to understand is that we're going to be talking about a man today, a single man, a man, uh, I don't mean that necessarily he wasn't married, but a, a one solitary life, and look at the ways that he was encouraging to other people. And the first thing we're going to see is you can encourage by words, but you can also encourage by giving. Now, I'll clarify that in a minute, but if you're in Acts chapter 4, looking at verse 32, you have this description that all the believers were in one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them from time to time. Those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus. Now let me stop there for a minute because what that tells us is a little bit about who he is. A Levite from Cyprus would have meant that he was a guy that the Jews considered to be a Hellenistic Jew. Now, a Hellenistic Jew meant that they understood the ways of the Greek culture. They may have talked Greek, probably did, probably carried on some Greek customs. And as a result, Hellenistic Jews, even Levites, weren't allowed to participate in the things of the Lord like regular Jews were. They were considered kind of a second class. So Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means sons of encouragement, Sold a field he owned, brought the money, and put it at the apostles' feet. First thing we need to make sure we understand, because many of you probably do, but some may have forgotten this, that Barnabas is not the guy's name. We talk about Paul and Barnabas a lot. That's not his name. What does it say his name is here? Joseph, right? Barnabas is not his name. Joseph is his name. Barnabas is a nickname. And it literally means son of encouragement. Now, that's important because in their day and time, when you were called son of anything, it meant that you were just like that. You were the spitting image. You were the exact replica. You were the copy. And so for Barnabas, what they're saying is, he is the embodiment. He is the essence. He is the character of encouragement. Now, My guess is he did that with his words a lot, and that's why they talked about it. But that's not the only way he encouraged. In fact, it gives us this very important lesson right here in chapter 4 that he was a man who encouraged by his giving. Now, here's an interesting thing. Barnabas is the first recorded donor in the New Testament church. He is the first person that they declare as a donor, and it's interesting because you can look and cheat if you want to. It's an open book test. What's the story right at the beginning of Acts chapter 5? What's that story there? Ananias and Sapphira, what? Let's contrast the two, okay? Barnabas comes in. What does he do? He sells his land. He brings the money. He lays it at the apostles' feet. Now, There are a couple of significant things up there. First of all, it just shows his radical commitment to the people of the community and the encouragement he wanted to give them. He's saying, listen, I am freely giving up a major portion of my wealth in order to encourage you and in order to meet the needs of people here. The second thing that we see is there are absolutely no stipulations on his gift. What is meant thereby he laid the the offering at the feet of the apostles is that he literally... Said, here it is, you do whatever you want with it. I don't need an account of it. I don't need a line-by-line item of what's going on. I just say it is the Lord's, and I am giving it to your care. You take care of it, all right? Now, how does that contrast with what comes in chapter 5? And Ananias and fire. what did they do? They sold some land, right? They bring some of it. What do they tell the apostles? This is everything we got. And the apostles say to Ananias and Sapphira, I'm sorry, but that's not all it's got. We're going to make you go sit in the corner for a couple of minutes. Think about your mistake and come back. Is that what happens? What happens? What happens? They die. One dies. They drag him out. Other one comes in. They let her tell the same story? Gone. Here's the point. Barnabas was a guy who his sole concern was to see the people of God prosper. He was a balcony kind of guy that was encouraging and cheering in any way possible he was going to encourage people had a need. He didn't sit around and talk about. Well, I wonder. I wonder why they got a need when why they don't take care of themselves. He just came and he gave. Turn over to Acts chapter 9. Somebody tell me the story in Acts chapter 9. The big story. What's happening here? You can look at Acts 9, first part of it if you want to. What's happening here? Saul is becoming Paul, right? This is the conversion of Saul. He's on the road to Damascus and all of that. And and here's what happens. In, in Acts chapter 9, remember Saul? He was the one that was spewing murderous threats who had been there when Stephen was killed. He was the one hunting down Christians to have them executed or imprisoned. He was the number one enemy of the church at that moment. In Damascus, uh, he's on his way. He gets blinded in Damascus with a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him. The Lord go to the house of Judas. So they do all this thing, and they find together, and they start to work together. Then it tells us that he spent several days with disciples in Damascus. Now, understand, that's not the apostles. That's the believers in Jesus, the disciples. And once he began to preach in the synagogue, all of those who heard him were amazed. Verse 23, After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan Day and night they kept close watch on him. His followers took him by night, lowered him in a basket through an opening. Verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples there. Now, who were the leaders of the disciples in Jerusalem? The apostles. You remember the apostles, right? The twelve guys. But they were all afraid of him. Not believing he really wanted to be a disciple. They thought he was going to turn double agent on them. Verse 27. But Barnabas took him in, brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul in his journey had seen the Lord. The Lord had spoken to him. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. I want you to get the picture here for a minute. Paul comes to Jerusalem, and he is unbelievably excited about getting to meet the people that were with Jesus all the time. And he gets there, and he he knocks on the door. You know, this is all speculation, but knocks on the door. They open the door a little bit. They ask for the password, because in that day, it was kind of dangerous to be a believer in Jerusalem. Ask for the password, and Paul gives the right password, and they start to open the door a little bit, and then somebody goes, wait a minute! That's Saul. Saul? What do y'all want to do with Saul out here? What's Saul? The one that killed people. No, don't let him in. Imagine the deflation that comes in Paul's life. As he just can't seem to get rid of that past. And none of the twelve come up and say, No, Matthew, Mark, Luke. John's not there. Luke and Mark weren't a part of it yet, but none of those that were in the Gospels come up and say, Hey, man, he's okay, let him in. It's this one guy, Barnabas, who says, Let's let the guy in. I know his story, it's amazing. Let him in. Turn over to Acts 11 for a second. I told you we're going to flip a little bit. Paul begins to share, things begin to happen. Paul begins to see the church explode. Verse 19 tells us in chapter 11 that there are these people that are scattered all over by the persecution that comes after Stephen. But that Antioch was a place where the Lord begins to multiply them. And in verse 22... It says, news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. The, the point here was they said, we got to find out what's going on there, make sure it's on the up and up. Verse 23. When he arrived and saw evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Here's the thing that... that we need to understand. Not only do you encourage by words or you encourage by giving, but thirdly, you encourage by showing grace. You encourage by showing grace. This is what I call the benefit of the doubt ministry. I think one of the tragic losses in our hypercritical society is the loss of the benefit of the doubt. You know what I'm talking about, right? Something happens, somebody does something, and the first thing you think is, well, you know what? I I know them, and they couldn't have meant that. If you want to see that there's no benefit of the doubt ministry, you just watch the way that every decision of any public person is scrutinized and described. Everybody has ulterior motives and things behind what they're doing and they're not really out there now the truth is some of us have deserved that and some of the people in public have deserved that because they do have ulterior motives they do have things behind them but in general we've translated that into our lives a simple word for that besides benefit of the doubt is just the word trust encourage people by trusting in them Trusting in who they are, trusting in what they're doing, trusting in their motives and their desires. Barnabas comes to both Saul and to the Christians at Antioch and says, listen, I believe you. I trust in you. I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt because I believe God can change lives. And I believe you're seeking the Lord. And I want you to know that I am going to believe it. Now, I just want to ask you a question. Have you ever been in a situation in your life when you did something and maybe you, after doing it knew it was wrong or you, you understood the mistake you made but you never intended to or there wasn't any malice or, or any kind of meanness behind it and yet somebody close to you interpreted it as if you were intentionally trying to get at them. That you were intentionally trying to harm them. That you were intentionally trying to say something. And how you just felt. If you would just give me the benefit of the doubt here. That's not what I intended. My question to you now is, are you one of those people that give the benefit of the doubt? Encourage people by showing them grace. And then, here's the last thing. Encourage people by serving them. I'm going to show you something that's that's interesting. If you turn over to Acts chapter 14... There's this interesting thing that begins to happen. In the first 13 chapters of the book of Acts, whenever Paul and Barnabas are mentioned together, guess who always takes the first position? Barnabas. Whenever they're mentioned in a list, in fact, if you look in verse or chapter 13, just one one chapter back, it says in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Menean, and Saul. That's Paul. And you get this over and over again. When they talk about Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas is in the first position. In ancient writing, that's important because the first person listed, they didn't do alphabetical order stuff, the first person listed is the most prominent. When you get to chapter 14, suddenly Barnabas is no longer the headlining act. Chapter 14 says, In Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. Verse 3, So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there. The idea literally is that Barnabas, once he had gotten Saul or helped him a place of serving, he gladly took a step back and let Paul do what he's supposed to do. He gladly stepped aside and just worked in a servant role. In fact, what you see in the Scripture is that Barnabas takes on not only just a secondary role, but he kind of takes on this role of being the one that pushes Paul and encourages Paul and helps Paul. He's the man behind the man. And he doesn't ever have to have prominence again. Now, they have a disagreement. There's a place, I don't know if you remember this or not, but Paul and Barnabas have a disagreement. And Barnabas ends up splitting with Paul. But here's the interesting thing. He's splitting with Paul because he's giving someone the benefit of the doubt. And Paul's not. He's encouraging another leader, a guy named John Mark, who would eventually write one of the four Gospels. So here's the question. What's your encouragement ratio? Maybe it's not all words. Maybe it's in giving. Maybe it's in serving. Maybe it's in showing grace. But what's your encouragement ratio? I want to ask you this morning to come up with a specific application that you're going to do perhaps there's somebody in your life that you just need to tell exactly what you feel about now sometimes when we say that that's not good that's not what I mean I mean in an encouraging way and I don't mean backhanded compliments I just want you to know that you look thinner today than you ever looked you don't look near as big as you used to I had a lady come up to me, I've told some of you this, but I had a lady come up to me one time, I've been preaching for about two years, and preaching's one of those things, it's a learned, it's a learned thing, and some weeks are better than others, and uh, some of you say we're still waiting for those better weeks, alright? This lady came up to me and she said, I just want you to know you are my absolute favorite preacher when you're prepared. And then she walked away and I thought, well, what's that? When is that? You know? I think I'm prepared every week. So I'm, that's not the kind of encouragement I'm talking about, all right? I mean, genuine, heartfelt encouragement. Maybe you need to write a letter this week. Maybe you need to send an email. A call is better than an email. A lunch is better than a call. But you need to spend some time encouraging. Maybe there's something you need to give to. Maybe you need to freely kind of say, listen, I need to give to this organization or this group or, or or to this church and it's not in any other way except to see God's kingdom furthered. Maybe there's somebody that you need to show grace to that you haven't given them the benefit of the doubt. You haven't given them any kind of thought of, you know what, that's not what they meant, and you need to go and say, I apologize for that and I want you to know I believe in you, I trust in you and I'm with you. Or maybe there's just some area of service you need to be a part of. Before you get to your Sunday school class, I want you to write something down somewhere that you're going to do different this week or that you're going to do to encourage somebody. And I don't want it to be I'm going to write an encouraging email. Be specific. Do not merely listen to the Word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Many of you know that we had couple of church members pass away in the last week. I attended two funerals this week. And one of the things I realized at funerals is that people share wonderful memories and stories of the people that they love. And because I was working on this message and I had all these things going through my mind, I couldn't help but think, why are we so reluctant to do that while they're still here? Why? The answer is, I don't know. Who are you going to be someone that fills their tank for this week?